Welcome to Coffee and Geography, where my guests and I geek out about the world and everything on it, discovering that we are all geographers in some way, shape or form. I'm your host, Kit, and my pronouns are they, them or she, her. So settle down with a brew, hit that subscribe or follow button and enjoy the listen. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Coffee and Geography. I am talking to someone I've actually been on a podcast before, but not my own podcast. And I haven't actually been on hers yet. We might have to rectify that at some point. But Anne Organ, nice to speak to you again. And you. Yes. Yes. Good to be talking about geography rather than Star Trek. Our our connection is through that lovable rogue, Andy Placides, who's up there in space in the Great Derelict. Yep. So that's how we know each other through that through that sci-fi podcast and how we've we've had chats on that before. Um but yeah, but you also run your own podcast as well, don't you? Yes, the broadcast um which is does various different iterations of Star Trek and has also veered <laughs> off and at one point we were doing Borg Rogers which was Buck Rogers because we like we like a bit of 70s cheese. Yeah, we do indeed. <laughs> oh no, thing. now you know you know what I've got in my head now. I've got in my head yep. now. <laughs> the worst one was the female one. Went, those... Booty, booty, booty. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not, not, not sexist or anti-feminist at all. No, anyway. not at all. <laughs> but to <laughs> introduce you, Anne Marie is an inclusive Christian geek podcaster, mother of two, Londoner, uh, Franciscan. Is it Francis? Is that how you pronounce it? Franciscan. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Beer and coffee drinker, although not at the same time. <laughs> and this is going to, I might have to pick up on this a bit later. Rural phobic. Yeah. I've never heard that term before. I, I possibly made it up. <laughs> <laughs> we probably will have to come back to that, especially when we talk about where, you, where you're, uh, you're located. But before we move on, uh, Anne-Marie, let's talk a bit about what kind of uh, stuff you drink, particularly when you're on your podcast. Do you have a set drink that you, you go to a warm mug of something? So... If we're doing our podcast, it usually requires alcohol to have watched the, well, <laughs> to have watched the stuff. So that's usually yep. cider or real ale. Um, but um, if I'm talking about things that don't require alcohol or don't require watching, then I, I tend to drink in the evenings green tea. So I have got Ooh. Clipper. I don't think you can see that. Oh, that's exactly what I'm drinking. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. Clipper, yeah, that was that's my that's, that was my tip of the choice. Just just slurps to that as I was preparing for our chat. Yeah, the Clipper green tea. Yep, cool, nice little detox at this time of the evening because we're chatting in the evening. Yep, uh, we just sent my eldest up to bed so uh, so we can have our chat. Oh, brilliant, good. So um, a little bit of detox for both of us in the evening. And uh, going on to your location then. Uh, so you're located in South London. Yes, Catford. Catford, South London. So, yeah, so um, we'll go a bit ge- geographical here. I've just, um, so I've got my Google Maps here and I'm just looking at the huge number of settlements that have been swallowed by the London co- um, conurbation. Yeah. So let's see how many of them can you name. So obviously where you are right now, what else have we got in your local area? Downham. So we've got Downham, yeah. We've got um, Forest Hill, uh, Bellingham. Um, Croydon's not, not too far away from you, I guess. Yeah, then you've got Sydenham's not that far. It's where Sainsbury's is. Thornton <laughs> <laughs> um, Heath. Uh, yeah, okay. Thornton Heath, Norbury, South Norwood, Crystal Palace, Gypsy Hill. Um, oh, yeah, Crystal Palace. Yep. Yeah. Uh, my mum lives in Chislehurst. 
Um, okay. Elsie Woods, Mottingham, Eltham. I used to live in Welling. Um, and before that, I lived in Abbey Wood, which is near Thamesmead. Although I don't know that Thamesmead existed because I think that was a new town. Um, mm. But Abbey Wood did um, because the school that my son went to when he was really little was called Delucy School after uh, some Lord Delucy, somebody, and he owned all the area <laughs> all around there. Because um, oh. it was one of those information plaques on these. There's like a, a, a wood, and it's a nice wood, and then these these ruins that are there's really not much of it left. So it's more information mm. plaque than ruin. And yeah, one of those. But I did actually pick up one time we were walking the dogs there. I did actually pick up a flint axe head, and I've got that. Really? Right. Yep. And well, I've got it on my uh, my bedroom windowsill. Now. Okay, I did react with a bit of surprise there because you're like, okay, you know, the middle of South London you picked up. But then again, you know, I led into this particular part of the conversation by saying these are old settlements that have been swallowed up by urban yep. growth. And of course you're going to find stuff like that if, you, if, if, you're, if you're looking for them. Um, yeah, because, uh, I mean, London for me is an absolute fascinating place. So, so my my um well not my personal stomping grounds but my family background is is the other side of the river um in east london so so stratford and mile end stepney and all that kind of area so um yeah and all of these places of course they were their own little settlements before mm. london just grew and grew and grew and uh what's really interesting is that whenever i speak to people about london is that how that each little bit has its own particular character so yeah. where you are in south london is there anything about it where you are which has its own distinctive character compared to everything else around it? Or is it the same as everywhere else where it was its own little village that had its own little church, got swallowed up, inbuilt, in between, has maybe a tube stop if you're lucky or a train link if you're lucky, and it's the same as any other place in London? Or does it have some kind of unique character to it? I would say that where we are, um, the bit of Catford we're in is quite unusual in terms of the amount of green space within such a short walk from my front door um i'm used to there being green space around me in london there's more than a lot of people realize but yep if you go out my front door and walk in pretty much a straight line you get to somewhere called beckenham place park which is the biggest park in the whole of southeast london it's huge it's lovely and there's these people who do that cold water swimming thing that i just oh, make nice. Yeah, I, I just think they're mad. I, I there was uh, one time when it was really, really cold. I actually saw because they also do like boating and stuff, um, like canoeing or kayaking and paddleboarding and stuff on this on on this lake. And I saw a woman get a, an oar from like a, a a paddleboard or kayak, use it to bash the ice, and then go and have a swim. Yeah, not for me. <laughs> no, no, me neither. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's a that's a, a a lovely park. And if you have a dog, um, they've got these little sort of shops and a little cafe thing up by the manor house, and they sell doggy ice cream. Oh, okay. So, and very nice hot chocolate. So I have a hot chocolate, and dog has ice cream. Oh well, there you go. So there you go. Um, so there is. It can be cultured in these places, folks. So and also you've got uh, a is it a tributary of the Thames? A little. Yes, the Ravensbourne. River stroke stream called the Ravens. Yeah, that's it, the Ravensbourne. Yeah. And then yeah. if I go out um, round the back of me and I go up a hill to another really nice park, it's called Forster's Memorial Park. And it was a park that was founded deliberately as a green space by the guy who was the effectively like the Lord of the Manor. 
um, originally. Um, and that's just a really, that's smaller and that's more the sort of green space I'm used to. But mm. I'm also not used to having a choice of two, if you see what I mean. That's just, sort of, you know, yeah. one direction is one big park and the other direction is a, another very big one. And we also have the, the, the laughable home base. I don't know whether you can bring this up on Google, but opposite our house is home base. And somebody decided that it ought to look like Crystal Palace which is sort of vaguely in the area, but not that close. We don't know why somebody thought Homebase should look like Crystal Palace. Um, is this but, the and London then it's got a little lake one. in front of it with a statue of Peter Pan. But this little lake in the Bursley Commons is mostly full of shopping trolleys, although it does have a few ducks and a heron. And it's just the whole <laughs> the whole side of the thing. It's just like, what is this? Um, but yeah, because... Yeah, I've you know, got to see it, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. For folks, so 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 folks who are from my neck of the woods who look like, yeah, uh, you, know, you know, it kind of looks a little, a little bit like the Millennium Forum here in Norwich, but um, sort of. But yeah, I can see. I mean, it's like a, yeah, it's, it's got a glass kind of like arch domey kind of thing on the yeah. top of it, and then yeah, okay, interesting place for a home base. Home base. If, yeah. For those folks who don't know who home base is, it's uh, it's your it's your big DIY like store. You know, um, it's like what would it be in the States like Lowe's or something like that, or, you know, Best Buy and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, B&Q or whatever equivalent you might have. Wix's. Yeah. Do Yeah. So, ah, cool. Excellent. So you got a bit of character, but yeah, you were talking about how the, the amount of green space there is in London, of course, um, just refer back uh, folks back to both. Uh, I spoke to Helen Illis uh, last season who, designed the green ground map so it's basically uh, the a, a mock-up of the london tube network but instead of the tube stops you've got green stops and you can walk and she's designed it where you actually can go along a line and then walk from green space to green space all across london in like a kind of like connectivity integrated kind of like transport way it's really cool um and the other the other shout is to Dan Raven Ellison, who was one of the people who led the uh, London um, City National Park scheme to get London as the first designated national park city in the whole entire world. And one of the big selling points about it is because the, the, actually the majority of the space in London is actually green space. Yes. In terms of square area, so it's true. What Amory says, folks, is actually quite a lot of green space in in London, like a patchwork. Yeah. The other thing about Catford is you go, if you go into Catford proper, because we're on the south edge of Catford, if you see what I mean, you then have the Catford cat. Have you seen the Catford cat? Mm, okay. Is this another one I've got to look up? The yes. So it's the Catford Shopping Centre, which isn't very big, and it's got, it isn't paper mache, but it looks like a giant paper mache cat. And it's been listed. Oh. I can see it. Yeah, <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's now it's now a listed structure. Um, really? Oh wow! So yeah, you think think of those times, folks, when you got a nefarious cat who's trying to grab something. You know, they kind of lean forward and they kind of like pout out with their with their paw. That's exactly, and it's kind of like leaning out over the cat for centre sign, trying to look like it's trying to paw at something, with a very mischievous look on its face. But it's big. Yeah, it's quite big. <laughs> I just I <laughs> yeah. love it. Yeah. So yeah, there it's is quite terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> the cat for cat statue, and that's, that's, I just love it that it's been listed. So that there's nothing that can be done to it now, folks. Um, and this is mostly for our American audience, right? Yeah. 
who are like, oh yeah, we have history that goes back 150 years. Um, but in the United Kingdom, we have something called like graded listed buildings. You've got grade one, grade two, whatever like that. And it's basically, it's, it's um, a level of protection that either an area or a building has. So yeah, like for example, grade two listed building is like, you have to have like exceptionally special permission to like just even change the windows or something to replace the windows or something like that or to change the, its facade or whatever um so the fact that this cat's been given a listed status means nothing can be done to it without excess excessive permission like even if they have to repaint it just to give it a touch-up they still have to get permission yeah. that's gonna be a well looks after cat then yeah yeah, so it can be restored using the right techniques. Not that I know what the right techniques are, <laughs> although at the, yeah. at the moment, at least, the guy who designed it, I don't know whether he made it or just he designed it. Anyway, he's still alive, so you could ask him. Um, but because it celebrated its anniversary, I think it was last year. Mm. Installed in 19, 1974. So it was installed oh, no, in 1974. So it's coming up. On, so, okay. Coming up, yeah. so next year it's going to be 50, 50 years old. Yeah, well, the cat for cat folks, and uh, yeah, another thing that'll make Americans chuckle as well is that they have these kind of things all over the place, all over the states, you know, like just like superfluous kind of big statues of animals. I'm thinking of the new look up these ones, folks New Salem Sioux, New Set in North Dakota, uh, the Jamestown Buffalo, um. There's, there are more. I've, I've just suddenly I've gone host brain fog. But look at least those two up, and you'll see what I mean. <laughs> oh, awesome! So, what is it then? So, you you seem to have spoken fairly fondly about these green spaces, and yet you still call yourself rural phobic. So, come on, you're going to need to explain this one, Emery, to me. Okay, so I have no <laughs> night vision. Okay, if you don't give me artificial right. lighting. I cannot see. When I was in my early 20s, I was um, uh, a youth group leader for a short period of time. And we went on this expedition. We weren't camping. We was in like sort of log cabins, I suppose. But it was only in like the Surrey countryside or something. It wasn't, do you know what I mean? Rural, rural. But there were no streetlights. And there was like this night hike. And I just fell down a ditch because I couldn't see anything. And I kept trying to say, I can't see anything. Nobody was listening to me. Um, yeah, and so I had to be rescued by one of the kids from the bottom of a ditch. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I need street lighting. Um, I have hay fever, so I don't mm. really want to be around an awful lot of, you know, grass, trees, flowers without access to somewhere where I can shut windows and get away from all of that. Um and then also, um, I have no sense of direction. And I mean, none. I navigate by memory. My memory is good. And by landmarks. It does also mean if somebody moves a landmark, I then get lost in somewhere that I have been before. But um, for example, I can remember when um, I moved house into a completely new area. So I grew up in West London um, and in Hayes, um, so there's two places called Hayes, one not far from where I live now. That's quite nice. And <laughs> Hayes in Middlesex, which really isn't. And I grew up in a place that really isn't, um, not far from, from Southall. And so the first time I lived in South London, I can remember going out of the front door of like of my of my flat to post a letter. 
and I came back two hours later because uh-huh. I had, that's how lost I'd got. <laughs> oh, my um, when I read a map, if I read a map, it has to have like street names on it. I can't do it like in a field or whatever. And I always have to turn it because north upwards and forwards are kind of all the same thing as far as I'm concerned. Um, So when Google Maps occasionally changes that I'm following Google Maps, but the arrow doesn't go forward as I step forward. If I step forward in there, I can't do that. Can't understand what's going on. I have no, um, I have very limited depth perception, hence the whole thing about forwards up and north all being the same thing. Um, So basically I'm really good at lost. And what I need is an A to Z. I did, if I'm going somewhere new for the first time, I usually look it up on Google Maps and then print a hard copy map and then highlight it. And, and then I can use that. To then I still get fairly lost if things don't look quite, do you know what I mean, as I expected them to yeah. or whatever. But I usually allow time to get lost and retrace my steps. And again, if you're looking at street names, you're okay. In rural, Mm. it's not just that there aren't any street names. Sometimes you get a sign that says, thank you for driving carefully through our village. And there isn't yet a sign that says, welcome to. Freaks me out. I'm in nowhere. (laughs) Where am I? If something happens, find me. I'm I'm not in a place. I've left that one and I haven't got to the other one yet. That's just wrong. <laughs> that, that is a fantastic observation. I've, I've just, as somebody who likes to go hiking and walking, I, I can completely see that. Yeah. Um. So, but I, I'm fascinated by what you say about like you actually give yourself time to get lost. Yes. Have, have you like <laughs> played? Have you, have you played that to your advantage, like as a way of like discovering places or like just saying, you know what, I might get lost. I spare. I'll just enjoy the experience of like figuring out where this place is or do you like say, no, I need to find my way again. Have you ever taken advantage of being lost? Um, well, I can't really, unless I can remember how I got to where I ended up, which wasn't where I was supposed mm. to be. So it can be all right if I've gone the wrong way and I've worked out how I've gone wrong and I've discovered a nice pub. And if I can work <laughs> out, if I can retrace my steps again, I'm like, there's that nice pub. I'll go in that pub. Do you know what I mean? A, another time. Yeah. But I can't now. Um, so it has – but I can't plan to. I can't work on that basis because then I'd have to plan enough time to get lost trying to find somewhere else on my way to trying to find the place I really want to go to. Right. Yeah. So then are you lost anymore? So yeah. I, mean, also, I don't know my left or my right either. So Google says turn left mm. or whatever. I can't do that. I only know my left and my right. If I hold up my hands like that, that's le for left. So, yeah, you got, you've got that. You need that, that kind of visual yeah. reminder almost. So, I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to risk turning into uh, one of my favorite podcasts, which is, which is um, BBC's Digital Planet. There's a hell of a lot of geography on there, which is great. And I do recommend it to people. But... It seems to me as if as though new tech, like, for example, augmented reality, you know, like, because if you know with Google Maps, you can lift your smartphone up vertically when it's on Google Maps and it will switch to augmented reality view where it will overlay street view with what you're seeing. Have you ever Probably come across that? Process that? Probably couldn't process mm. it. Is that, too, is that same way, information I can't overload? See, I can't see in 3D. I, I just right. see blurry. Interesting. 
But this does all beg a really serious thing, doesn't it, with regards to accessibility to places. So it's it's a really serious thing. If I were to go somewhere rural, I would um, use that, what, three words? Because then rest of it find you. <laughs> so I would I would have that. I don't know whether it's an app or whether you just look it because you'd need normally you'd need internet coverage. And when you're in rural, you don't have that either. So it's like when you get lost, you can't correct yourself because it, it, you've got no way of doing that. So I don't know how it works for you when you are in somewhere really rural with no signal. But I know yeah. that in theory, you use the what three words app, and then a rescue team can come and find you. That's a, that's fascinating because see now I'm the opposite. To that i i i love i love what free words for kind of like the joy and the kind of the simplicity it brings and it can you know is it does it go as fine scale as a, a meter by meter square or something i can't can't quite remember it, it, does, but... it goes remarkably it does go remarkably detailed so it will really yeah. if you were stuck on a mountain and you could give that to rescuers it would really help them narrow yeah. down their search to find you so yeah and then when when i um but like I'm like kind of like well with with everything else that's out there Google Map with latitude longitude that kind of thing ordnance survey grid squares I'm like well what's the point but then again hearing you talk now has made me appreciate that actually converting like a location into three simple words actually can make a big difference and can make it make you know areas more accessible so I think I've pretty found a new uh, found appreciation for it so um, right. What do you reckon the what? Well, what do you reckon the what free words for the cat furs cat should be? I'll tell you what they what it is. But what do you reckon it should be? Oh, what do I reckon it should be? Feed me now. <laughs> uh, um, I want to say something like chavy but cute. <laughs> Uh, I'm just gonna let folks who don't know what Chavi means to just look that up. Um, <laughs> so, the what free words for the cat for cat apparently is a long fingernails nearly. Right. So there you are, folks. A long fingernails nearly. So yeah, it's um, and I know somewhat free words. Um, like actually the words don't have to make any sense folks they're just free random words but there are some places i think where actually the what free words are like, oh quite that's quite close to the bone with like what it actually is um so let's let's, have, let's play a bit of gaming right pick pick any landmark it could be some something personal to you or it could be a, a favorite place around the world or maybe somewhere in mexico that you told me that you've just recently been to what do you think oh okay um, Acumal in Mexico. Oh, crikey. If it wants you to be Acumel, more specific, Mexico. Half Moon Bay in Acumal. Half Moon Bay. Ah, oh, there you go. Right. As, okay. <laughs> so the, the what three words, folks, for Half Moon Bay, Acumal, Mexico is entrusts, tearless, gory. Wow. <laughs> any of those three words make any many sense? Tearless, I don't know. Entrusts. Okay, interesting. See now, folks. Now you know where uh, where Amory has gone on holiday very recently. So that is the uh, the Yucatan Peninsula, yeah, on the east coast of the Yucatan Peninsula. 
Okay. Oh, I tell you what, then I'll do. We'll come back to Mexico, but I'll get folks to look at where New Salem Sioux in North Dakota is, right? Because since it's been mentioned, the giant cow. So New Salem, North Dakota, folks. So I need to find the the what three words exactly for the cow. So that's uh, that's New Salem itself. There's Salem Sioux. Salem Sioux. Sorry, that was poor. Um, you see, it's. There's no cow-related word in the what three words. Level wealthy, certainly. Oh, no. Okay, this one's a bit closer. So I'm just clicking on each of the four squares that are just around Salem Sioux. Preheated daisy brought, because daisy's obviously a a cow Cow. name. Yeah. Yeah, green moral imagine. Relaxing courtyards mentions. But anyway, you could pick one of those folks and you'll find the new Salem Sioux, which overlooks the Interstate 94. Anyway, right. Let's go back to uh, to Mexico then. Come on in. You, you said you didn't want to riff on it too much, but tell us a little bit about your recent trip to Mexico because it does sound fascinating, especially um, especially uh, your relations. <laughs> yeah. So my sister lives in Mexico, has done for a long time now, um, and she's a she's a primatologist and also a conservation biologist. And she went out there originally to study spider monkeys at Punta Laguna. Um, and she looked at, um, how, um, some monkeys use grooming, but they use babies to sort of bond with one another. Um, and, um, she, she, one of the things she discovered in studying her spider monkeys that there's bearing in mind, this was now gosh, 15 or so years ago, but it used to be a common myth that only humans could be really horrible to each other. And no other animal was horrible. And she watched one mm. monkey to convince another monkey to go off away from the troop. One monkey killed the other monkey, smashed its head in, went back. Then when all the troop were looking for the missing monkey, this murder monkey joined in with the pretend looking. And when they found the body, the monkey that had murdered the other monkey was all upset and crying as if they were innocent and hadn't done anything. Wow. Um, where we get it from (laughs) (laughs) yeah so it's not only humans who can murder yeah um so that's a cheery thought um (laughs) but uh, we got to see the monkeys that the troops of monkeys that kathy studied in punta laguna and swim in the lagoon as well which is beautiful um and the monkeys are not tame but because it's a protected area um they are not bothered by humans so you, you just stand there you don't approach them or anything like that and they'll just swing in the trees above you mm. which is great and then Kathy's main project is, is still with spider monkeys but in Calicmore, um, uh where she's studying various be- their, their behaviours and also the environment and um, she ended up becoming a conservation biologist because if she wanted to save the forest that the monkeys were in then she needed to understand more do you know what I mean about the forest and then also the other animals yeah. in it um, and they set up cam- camera traps and they found loads of jaguars and ocelots um, and then, so Operation Wallacea, which is the organisation that she works for, they have groups of um, secondary school students, but sort of older age, and then also university students and some postgrad students. They all go out to the same place to Calicmore, but they study different things, but then their data all gets pulled together to be part of one massive data set um, to try and understand this forest and particularly things like migratory patterns of animals so that because wow. you though it would be very nice to be able to tell the mexican government no you can't build a road 
but they want to improve the infrastructure. So it's about, okay, well, if you do want to build the road, can you not build it here and build it slightly to the left or slightly to the right? Or can you create tunnels or overpasses or something for the animals so that they can still cross from one place mm. to an, to another place? So it's about um, getting people sort of to, to work together so that, yes, you still get the infrastructure, but you've hopefully at least mitigated the damage done to the animals and then so they're studying that over time um but they're also working with um some of the local people in the area who might potentially want to sort of make money out of loads of tourism and development and sort of saying to them well is that what you want to do or is it just that what you want to do is actually have some money and have some income because there are other ways of doing things and so they've got a whole load of them um with beehives making manuka honey, which is um, rather um, lucrative. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And it sort of it gives them a a decent income in a way that doesn't do any damage to the environment. Um, and she's also worked with because the that part of Mexico is Mayan rather than Aztec or Incan or whatever. Um, and at one point, and I don't, it was definitely in the Yucatan, but I don't know exactly which area. Um, the government wanted to build on the land, but actually the Mayan community owned it. And they were like, oh, we really don't want them building on our, our land. It, it matters to us. You, we don't mm. want this development here. Um, we value our, our land. So Cathy was like, well, you don't have to let them develop on it then. And this was news to them. She was like, no, you have this and this. And so she basically went into bat for them um, in terms of fighting legal battles to say, no, you're not going to build your development on this land. It matters to the Mayan people. Um, and all along the way, she was keeping them updated and together they won. Because they had all the information that was necessary. They just didn't know how to use it and didn't understand the necessary legal processes. So she was be like, yeah. okay, they're asking this question. What can you tell me about this? Right, brilliant. We can show that then. No, you and the, the, the Mayan community got to keep the land. That is absolutely fascinating. And it just goes to, uh, that's just another example about how, you know, kind of the, the, the hangover of colonial processes and, you know, those policy legislation which completely ignores indigenous populations yeah. and then they take advantage of it. And it just ta- it takes an ally like your 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 sister to just go ahead and just say no. Actually, this is these are your right. This is what you should do. This is your land, and help them to make that connection. And it's just yeah. so goes. It's just such a fantastic example of empowerment, allyship, you know, and and decolonizing processes basically. So I really need to get your sounds like a fascinating individual. You really need to yeah. get on this podcast. <laughs> Yes, and she she could talk about the monkeys in Calakmul or she could talk about the work she's doing with mangroves that has involved her speaking before the Mexican Parliament um, or she could talk about her turtle project in Acomal. And we got to swim with the turtles okay. that she worked with. So, yeah. I, I I don't want to take up a whole podcast talking about her and her work because what you really need is to get her on as a guest to talk about yeah. her and her work. But I can tell how proud you are of her, though, which is, which is amazing. And... Hi folks, a chance for you to recharge your brew, but also a polite prod to remind you that it's so easy to support this podcast. Simply liking, sharing, rating and reviewing means that it will get on more people's radar. 
Also, there are a few links down in the description which may be of mutual benefit. Please do check them out. And you are passionate about this stuff yourself because you do have a love of geography yourself because you have uh, a bachelor's degree in geography yourself. Yeah. So, um, and it says here that your your dissertation um, was about the interface between belief and the environment, which is I've always found fascinating. Now, I am I am an atheist. Uh, I, I I sometimes joke that I'm a born again atheist because I was raised Catholic. Um, but I still value, um, you know, spirituality, faith, you know, the things that cannot be explained, um, you know, without some kind of leap of faith. Um, and I just want to recall, I, I mean, I think you've, you, you've heard it yourself, Amory, but I just want to remind folks that back in season one, I had a, an amazing chat with, uh, the actor Adil Hussain, who, who you all know, Amory played um, Adit Hasahil in season three of Discovery, you know, at the very, very beginning of the season and then the very end of the season. Um, when, spoilers, he is made a lieutenant in Starfleet. Uh, but, um, and he re- retold this fantastic story of how he made this huge connection to nature, this spiritual connection to nature when he went on this retreat in order to prepare for some role or some character for an acting job. And um, the thing that struck me, he said that the more he spent opining and absorbing himself in the natural environment with no technology, you know, and he was, he said he always used to sit next to this one tree, this really old tree. And he had this epiphany that, this tree, trees in general, but this tree is is his primordial grandmother, you know, the nurturer of all things, the giver of life of all things, the provider of things. And it was just, I, I felt his spiritual experience through the way he told his story. Um, and I just love that. But um but yeah, I'd love for you to tell us the kind of the things that you were where you were looking at and the kind of about between religion, belief, and the environment, because you know they do intertwine quite often, more often than people think. I think religion and science is more compatible than what a lot of people think. Yeah. So I was looking primarily at the built environment, um, and I was interested in. So what I explored very specifically was because this was around the time that the Church of England had decided, yes, we will let women be priests. And I was interested in the map of, in South London, where I was living, where are the places that have disagreed with that decision? And what do they have in common? Um, And I found that there was a link between there having been very deprived areas, historically, where um, only people from a more catholic tradition within the church of england who at that time they were celibate men who came from that tradition so they didn't have a family and it was only people who didn't have a family who were willing to go into those areas and serve as priests in those parts of south london and so the churches then grew up in a very specific tradition within the church of england in those areas and it was that tradition that said we don't agree with your decision 
And so you can map it, you can overlap a map of effectively Victorian deprivation and those churches at that time, because things have changed now and that there are definitely still some churches that um, don't accept the ordination of women. And some of those now are of a different tradition called evangelical. There has been some change, but back then in the mid 90s, when I was looking at it, there was a clear correlation between Victorian deprivation and then those churches saying, no, we don't agree with with, with That's the That's fascinating. Priest. Yeah. That's, wow. Yeah, and uh, it's it's remarkable how, how geography, whether it's human geography or physical geography, has that much of an impact on belief systems. Um, you know, it could be whether women should be able to be, to be priests or, you know, the way that you look on how you should look at stewardship of of the world it's yeah. quite and remarkable it's, yeah and then um the job i do now is i'm called a dalton registry clerk there are very few of us um nationally um and i work for two dioceses in the church of england a large amount of my work doesn't have anything to do with geography but there's a significant aspect of it which does which is something called the faculty jurisdiction and that is like planning permission but for churches and for churchyards and there you do absolutely have a link between belief and the environment because what you believe about life and death affects what you do and don't do in a churchyard and over time that then affects what is in the churchyard and there are now for example certain types of lichen that are only found in Church of England churchyards because they've used local stone because it mattered to them to use local stone to make these monuments to people. Have, and those stones have been allowed to weather because it's part of Christian belief that death is sort of is part of life. So in a Church of England churchyard, as distinct from a cemetery, you, you might get honed stones, but you don't get polished. So you will over time. They will deteriorate. They will weather. They will get lichen right. growing on them. And it creates over time, Christian Church of England, Christian belief about life after death has resulted in distinct environments in the UK. Oh my God. That is just, that's just blown my mind. <laughs> I, no, it's seriously, I mean, it sounds like it's such a, a small thing, but because I, we, we have, we have uh, here, we have our local, we like going for walks around our local area and we walk through the, the local cemetery. Um, it's a nice little walk. We do a loop with the kids and we, we, yeah, we, we do the kind of thing where we look at the stones, we look at the, you know, the years like the, can we find like the, the, the earliest year possible? And then we look at like, we see things growing on the gravestones, the lichens and things like that. Um, and I remember my first year of university as well as I, uh, for my environmental science degree going we went to devon and one of the things we had to do was look at weathering rates of gravestones and look at the the micro ecosystems that are building all the gravestones and now that you've said what you've said i've now made that connection and it's just all of everything that all my memories and my experiences of going walking through cemeteries going on that field trip it just it's just added another layer to it a quite profound layer so next time we go for a walk around our local area now that's just going to enhance my experience like tenfold so folks next time you go for a little walk can you go for a churchyard or something there you go there's something 
you've not really not really known about um and, and another example is the fact that um an awful lot of churches particularly in rural areas but also to be honest around where i live now in south london are home to bats yeah because yeah. there are restrictions on what you can and can't do to a building so these buildings have been around in a similar condition and if they're within a churchyard that churchyard mm. is also protected by certain legislation so that hasn't really changed yep. so you have created a consistent environment for bats and mm. there is now there is legislation that means if you want to do work for, to to a, a church you have to check for bats and then um if there are any, Natural England will give advice depending on where the works are happening, the time of year and the bat species that have been discovered. But you can yeah. also, there's sometimes some ingenious works. And so to get permission, uh, like planning permission, it's called a, a, a faculty. And um, I've worked with a couple of churches now to get a faculty to develop almost like a sort of a bat run or a bat flap so that the bats are diverted from the main space so that their droppings are not falling on, on the main church, but yeah. they are still living in the same place that they have always lived. Nice. So you can, you can work with nature. Yeah. Um, we, we actually seriously consider like putting bat boxes on under the eaves of our, on the outside of our house. But we were advised, a friend of mine who actually works for, um, to do, looking at planning permission and environmental impact kind of stuff, like on bats and stuff like that, bat ecology and whatnot. So when the, so re, over here, they were, there's a massive, great big controversy regarding building the Northern Distributor Road around Norwich, and it was going to have a huge impacts on, on bats. Uh, and I spoke to my friend and I said, what do you think about this? Is this a good idea? I want to support bats. She said, don't do it, Kit. You know, as much as we would like bat homes, enough, you, you don't want to do it. Your house, and going on what you just said, Amory, it's like your house will be constantly in flux. You know, you're gonna, there's, there'll be more repairs needed to it. The roof's got to be maintained. You know, what if you move out of that house, the new owner, you might have a struggle selling it or the new owners might not want bats but they're because there's a bat box and you've got bats in there your house is now a protected area i said you are probably will not do those bats any favors by having a bat box in there because you could actually have bats settle in there and then there might be a disrupt an unforeseen disruption and then you, there's going to be hell to pay so she said it's better to have these bat boxes as you just said somewhere which is less changing or more stable so it's not surprising that you say like a church yeah. um or a very old listed building. So yeah. the other the other place where I know there's bat boxes is the Yorkshire Dales in Malham Tarn Field Centre. I used to take kids every year, and that that building is listed building Malham Tarn Field Centre, and they have bat boxes up there. And the reason why they can is because you know they can't really touch the building anyway. So I've been in a couple of um, national trust buildings as well that have got signs up saying you know we have bats here. And again, it's a listed building. There's a limit to the changes that they could make at any rate. So the bats are safe. And what they've done in a couple of them is set up cameras. So you can go and, and watch the bats, but you're not in with the bats, if you see what I mean. You're sort of viewing them remotely. Yeah. Smashing. Right. There's going to be one thing left to do before we uh, finish off, Avery, is that uh, spilling the beans. Uh and you say that you're slightly obsessed with the color purple. And <laughs> yes. I want you, I, I want to know what is it about 
purple. That brings an obsession out of you. <laughs> uh, it's been my favourite colour ever since I can remember. It turned out it was the colour of my school uniform when I was at primary school. And I can remember the only thing that bothered me about starting big school was, was I going to get to wear purple? And when right. I was told, yes, you will, and then I, I went off my uniform, that was it. There was no, you know, tears, no, nothing like that. It was like, bye, mum, because I was wearing purple. So, you know, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I've had a couple of people speculate that possibly I don't see as much purple as other people do. Because people sometimes go to me because they know I like purple. Oh, look, Henry, that's really nice. That's purple. And I look at the thing they're pointing at and I see it as blue. So oh, I've, I've got the same problem. Other yep. people have speculated that therefore it's got rarity value for me. Ah, okay. Yep. Um, but I've always loved it. So, um, yeah, th this is my phone case, which is yeah, you see, um, I've got a purple watch. Oh, yeah, because yeah, hair is purple. Um, I haven't got two coats on yet. It's all a bit smudged, but purple nail varnish. Purple nail polish. Nail varnish. Yeah. Um, purple glasses case. Purple <laughs> this glasses. is amazing. Um. Oh, I've even got purple dice for gaming <laughs> i love it <laughs> <laughs> um what else have i got that's purple uh bedroom walls are purple um wow got those painted when we when we moved in um i am always wearing something purple you I, you want to be able to see it it could be my underwear but every day <laughs> i am wearing something purple i have Various different lipsticks, but they're all various shades of purple. Same is true of all my nail varnishes. They're all either purple or lilac. Mm. I don't see the point of wearing any other colour. Um, oh, I, I, I get it. Various purple mugs. Um, yeah. I mean, my mum says yeah. that I'm the easiest person to buy presents for because she goes shopping, she sees something purple, she buys it. It can be like, my birthday's in November, so that's quite close to Christmas. And she will see something in like March or April, but she'll be like, yeah, I'll get that from Marie. It can be formed part of her birthday present or Christmas present because it's purple, so she'll like it. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, I, I can. I understand where you're coming from, though, because I, I probably this, I'm the same way when it comes to foxes. I've got fox everything. You know, I'm wearing my fox pyjamas right now. I've got fox onesie. I've got fox jewellery. You know, I've got a little tiny cuddly fox right here. I've got fox on my badges. Every, you know, so yeah, and my, my bloody name is to do with foxes as well. So, you know, um, so I get it. I get it. Um, I'm going to, right. I'm going to, gonna. I'm going to really clutch at straws here, stuff like that. But do you therefore find the... And this is a Star Trek reference, everybody, in case you're wondering what the hell I'm talking about. Do you therefore find uh, the Jem'Hadar battleships quite visually appealing then, bearing in mind they've got purple nacelles? Yeah. In fact, <laughs> I play Star Trek Attack Wing and I play Klingons because I'm naturally loud shouting. Yeah, you've got a bat left on your wall behind you, yeah. which is yeah. a Klingon double-handed sword, basically. Yeah, so I'm my favourite alien race is the Klingons, so I play as the Klingons. And uh, my husband was playing Federation, and then we had friends who played as Romulans or whatever. And then they brought out the Dominion fleet um, alongside the Cardassians. The Cardassian ships are sort of brown, but then I was like, I'm, I'm sitting there, and, and there's my husband playing with the purple ships. I'm like, no, they should be my ships. What are you doing <laughs> with the purple ships? <laughs> the Klingon ships are yeah. green. But they are, so they are yeah. pretty to look at while I'm blowing them up. Um, but uh, 
yeah. Yeah, I was always, um, oh, what was the character called? I can't remember, Professor Plum, when we played Cluedo. <laughs> Professor, I'm always Miss Scarlet. <laughs> um, isn't the um, isn't the uh, USS Protostars like not necessarily in the cells purple, but like when you see it streak away, it's like yeah. I'm sure they're purple as well, which makes it quite aesthetically pleasing. Yeah, I can understand how how a purple can be. Yeah, no, I'm 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 with you on that. I'm sold. I'm sold. Oh well, this has been a lovely chat, Amrith. Um, just me and you, no, 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 Andy to kind of uh, interject. Uh, <laughs> bless him. We love you, Andy. Um, thanks for getting us in touch and everything, mate. We really do appreciate that. Um, so we're going to finish off with we are all geographers, um, linking you to our previous guests. So um, last uh, week, I spoke to a friend of mine, um, Zoe Johnson, who's. Uh, well, she was a well. She is still a meteorologist. She'll always be a meteorologist, but now she's trained to be a broadcast journalist. Um, but because of her her absolute love for the weather and climate, um, when I asked her for a word to come up with a word that she wants you to link to geography in thirty seconds, I mean, I don't know how. She just said clouds. So she wasn't like oh, I don't want to come up with something really hard or something really profound. I'm just like, I just love clouds. It's going to be clouds. Okay. So, Emery, all you've got to do is talk about clouds for 30 seconds. But you can do it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So, whenever you're ready, you can yeah. speak for, speak about clouds for 30 seconds. Okay. Um, I've been one of those people who likes lying on the on the ground, looking up at the clouds and seeing what shapes I can see. I always try and see the Starship Enterprise, but I've never quite managed it yet. <laughs> most, most things are a, sort of a vaguely amorphous blob and a smiley face, if you're lucky. Um, when I was flying to and from Mexico, I really appreciated being above the clouds and looking at them in a different different angle. And I really like the wispy ones. I kind of feel like they're a bit like cotton wool um, or maybe candy floss and you can eat them. Oh, Cirrus clouds, referring to yeah, the cirrus clouds, the the wispy ice crystal ice ones up in the upper troposphere. Yeah, I love the cirrus clouds; they're really nice too. Um, cool, that was dead on thirty seconds. Well done. So you need to now look for a cloud that's shaped like this. Then, yeah, that's what I'm trying to find. <laughs> the Enterprise D. Yeah, you can find the saucer. <laughs> so yeah, got... That's quite that's quite easy. It's the nacelles oh, that are more difficult. Yeah, yeah. So, folks, I've, I'm just holding in my my, my model. Enterprise D, which is about if I lay it from fingertips to yeah, so it goes up to almost my elbow, but not quite. It's that big. So yeah, love it. The kids get hold of it and they break in the cells. So it's like uh, it's like cause and effect over and over again. <laughs> uh, what what word would you like to come up with, Average, uh, for our next guest, whoever that may can be? I be? Can I be cheeky and say Star Trek? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, I'm, I'm not that. <laughs> Let's go for Star Trek. They might be like, oh, it would be so awesome if they hadn't, if they like didn't want anything to do with Star Trek. They've got to talk about it for thirty seconds. That's just like the best thing ever. <laughs> yep, we'll do that then. Right. So apart from um, the wonderful uh, Andy, um, is there anybody else you would love to give a shout out to? Um, and your sister, of course. Yes. Kathy, um, yeah, I'll give a give give a shout out to Peter, my husband, because we do the broadcast together. We watch Star Trek together yep. um, and drink beer together um, <laughs> and, and coffee, but not necessarily at the same time. 
he doesn't drink coffee. Oh, okay. He doesn't like coffee. Um, I'm a big coffee drinker in the morning. I have a I have a pint of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> um, before I leave the house, I've got a pint mug and it's got um, Grumpy on it from the Seven Dwarfs. Um, and it says, <laughs> I love it. It says something like, do not engage, do not ask stupid questions, do not expect a polite answer. Um, and then I then have a travel mug of coffee to then drink on my journey into work. And then I make myself coffee when, when I get to work. My goodness. I drink rather lots of it, but then stop at lunchtime. And then I don't <laughs> have any caffeine after lunch. Because awesome. I'm not good at mornings. Um, and in terms of other other shout outs, I'd like to give a shout out to Jim Moon, who does the Hypnagoria podcast. He does a number of different streams. So he does stuff on weird fiction, but he also does a lot on folklore. And there's an overlap frequently between folklore and the environment. So listeners yeah. to your podcast may find some of his podcasts of, of, of interest and worth listening. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Brilliant. And uh, you've got the, the Borg cast uh, where people can listen to you and uh, get in touch with you. But is there any other uh, way folks can get in touch with you? I guess because you, you have a Mastodon account, I believe. I do. I, now, this is where can I find it to read it out? Yeah. <laughs> I never and- know what I'm called. I know it's Borgcast Ammo, but then it's at something at something. Yeah. At, at geekdom.social? I think. Or cast ammo at geekdom.social. Um, and I'm also on Facebook, um, just as me, as Amory Organ, um, if people want to find me there. Amazing. Brilliant. Well, Amory, that's, um, it's been absolutely delightful speaking to you. Um, and yeah, just looking forward to the next time we chat, whether it is we'll geek out over sci-fi, Star Trek, or whatever, or we take the mickey out of Andy again. Whatever yeah. it is, I know we're going to have a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot Emery you're welcome it's been fun thank you for having me on thank you so much for listening we hope you had fun if you haven't already done so please subscribe so more stories and experiences can drop into your favourite podcast app if you fancy being a guest or have any feedback follow us on twitter at coffeejogpod and send us a DM or you could email coffeeandjog at geogramblings.com. Until next time, keep geogging.